morning, good morning again. The sermon text for this morning is in fact from Matthew chapter 6, uh, verses 25 through 34. We continue on in our study of the Sermon on the Mount this morning. The title of the sermon is simple. It is, Do Not Worry, obviously taken directly from the text. A recent study performed at the Pennsylvania State University Department of Psychology revealed the following. 91.4% of worries did not come true for those who suffer with what is called generalized anxiety disorder. More than that, for the subjects in the study who have overactive anxiety the mode of the data was 100%. And let me break this down for you. Now, in statistical language, the mode is the most often repeated value in a data set. Right? That's a technical term. But what it means that is, in this study, of the people who wrote down their worries and then monitored them to see if they came true, most often... 100% of the time, the most often result was that their worries never came true. Other studies have shown similar results. There was a study at the University of Cincinnati, for example, that said, quote, 97% of what you worry over is not much more than a fearful mind punishing you with exaggerations and misperceptions. Now, I want to be clear about something up front this morning. I did not come here this morning to psychoanalyze any of you. And I most certainly did not come here with the intent of merely modifying your behavior with data derived from the behavior therapy journal. That's not the text I'm exegeting this morning. I begin this way because I want you to see two things. Number one, I want you to see the wisdom of Jesus. He knows you. And he knows me. John 2.25 says that Jesus knows what's in a man. And second, and most importantly, I want you to see how Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, he solves, he gets at the root problem of our worry. I'm not talking about the world's solutions to a well-documented problem. I'm talking about burning the dross off of these new hearts of ours. I'm talking about walking in a way that brings glory to the name of Jesus Christ, that makes the gospel of Jesus Christ look powerful. And, and I'm talking about holiness and joy and peace and life in light of eternity. Only Jesus can bring true liberation from worry and anxiety. Everything else, the behavior therapy journal, it's just band-aids. What we will see today is not a band-aid. What we will see today is healing. And I trust you understand the difference between a band-aid and healing. That's where we're headed. So if you have your Bibles open to Matthew 6, verse 25... I want to see a few high-level things there first before we get into the details. Okay, So some high-level things 
that you should see from the text. First, as we have done previously in this study, I want you to see the logic or the flow of how Jesus gets to the topic of worry in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 25. So please look with me there. Verse verse 8 of Matthew 6, just eyes up the page a bit. Verse 8, Jesus has already said, your father knows what you need before you ask him. He will say this again today in verse 32. In verse 11 of Matthew 6, Jesus said, This is how we should pray. Give us this day our daily bread. We will see his emphasis today again in verse 34. In verses 19 and 20 of Matthew 6, Jesus told us, Do not store up treasures on earth, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So today, again, we will be discussing the topic of money and treasure And stuff, as Pastor Scott called it, in this world. And in verse 24, just before our text this morning, Jesus tells us, you cannot serve God and money. So of course, now Jesus goes on to do not worry. Is not worrying, is not worrying about money and your daily provisions... A daily temptation for us? Maybe I'm the only one, so I'm preaching to myself. Thanks for coming. I trust at least there have been seasons in your life when you worried about your finances. So here we are as Christians. How are we to think about these things? Well, Jesus takes it head on right here in the Sermon on the Mount. And we should be thankful for that. Next, I want you to see at a high level the approach that Jesus takes on this topic of worry. Listen, Jesus pummels us with arguments and reason and logic. That's what we're going to see today. We saw glimpses of this if you're in the Sermon on the Mount. Look at 5.13 or 5.46 and 47. There's a couple of rhetorical questions there. In 5.13 he says, If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? He doesn't answer the question, but he does ask it. Here in Matthew 6, 25-34, Jesus provides us, His people, full-blown argumentation. Why? Why does He do that here and not in Matthew 5? Why well, don't claim to know exactly what our Lord was thinking right in this moment as He's teaching? But perhaps... Worry is such a significant temptation for us, his people, that this particular exhortation that he gives us, do not worry, is in need of a good pummeling. Not only that, but in using such argumentation and logic, it is clear that the Lord Jesus wants us to think. Oh, we're going to come back to that again and again. He wants us to think. Look at Verses 25, 31, 34. He says, therefore, for this reason. He uses those words three times. He uses the word for or yet five times. Verses 26, 29, 32. He does it twice. And verse 34. Therefore, for. He's asking rhetorical questions. He's using the Socratic method five times. He's using logical argumentation. Arguments from the greater to the lesser. Or the lesser to the greater. We'll see that. And what a wonderful condescension this is for us, dull of hearing as we are. Maybe again, it's just me, but at least dull of hearing as I am. Parents, you remember when your kids were just babies, right? Cute and cuddly and squeezable. 
And then one day it happens. It starts to talk. Which seems like it's pretty amazing, right? And then it says, no. And you're like, wait, what? What did you just say? And if that isn't bad enough, soon after that it says, why? And then the whole parenting thing goes like haywire. Now, why can be helpful and instructive. Curiosity can be a blessing, but parents, just a reminder this morning that you are under no obligation to always answer the why question. There are times when that is prudent around the kitchen table for teaching and mentoring your children, especially as the kids get older. But there are other times, like when the child is running out into the street and you yell, stop! That's not the time for, why, Dad? Is my standing in the middle of this busy street such a burden to you anyway? So again, parents, you're under no obligation to always provide answers to why. Children, your parents are under no obligation to always provide you an answer to the question why. There are times when we will do so more and more as you get older. But understand, you do not have a right as a child to an answer. What's the point? The point is this. God as Father is under no obligation to you, Christian, child of God, to provide you an answer to what? Remember, only three of the Ten Commandments comes with some sort of explanation. And two of them, that explanation is about the nature of God, not Israel. So two of those three Right? So when you look at the Ten Commandments, 10% is basically the ratio we're working with at this point. Something happens in your life you don't understand. Go ahead and ask why. There's no problem with that. It's a biblical thing to do. The Old Testament prophets did it often. The Apostle Paul even prayed to God to be healed of his affliction. And he got an answer which happened to be... So it's a perfectly acceptable thing for us, God's children, to ask Him, our Father, why. But understand, the answer may come slowly or not at all until we see Him face to face. I want you to understand that some of the hardest days in Christian counseling, Pastor Mike, Pastor Scott, we know this, is when you get the why question and you can see the people's faces and you have to say to them, I don't know. It's not like we have a bat phone. Sometimes we don't know. But here's what I want you to see in this paragraph. Jesus labors long to answer the why question. And this is grace. This is a wonderful mercy to us. When we're reading our Bibles, it's January 2nd. When we're reading our Bibles... And we see fors and therefores and in order that's. We should pause and thank God for his condescending grace to us in giving us an explanation for why he does what he does. We should be thankful for these tender mercies of God toward us because he is under no obligation to give us that information. Next. Again, high level, before we dive in. I want you to see how God's own illustrations, Jesus' illustrations, are all around us. 
I mean, look at this paragraph. Look at Matthew 6, beginning in verse 25, going through verse 34. What do you see there? You see food and drink and clothes and birds and farming and barns and lilies of the field and sowing and kings and an oven. Ten of them, by the way. Friends, I want you to understand that when you have a Judeo-Christian worldview, when you have a biblical worldview, God is speaking to you every day, all day, everywhere. He's teaching you. He's discipling you if you have eyes to see and ears to hear. I mean, I, I don't know how many times I've used strength training, right? The tearing and repair of muscle fibers as an illustration for Christian growth. But I do know this, God has designed our physical muscles to tell us about spiritual growth. And then there's these skeptics, these scoffers, as the Apostle Peter calls them in 2 Peter 3. You have met these people. They come up to you and they say something like, Ha, some Christian you are, look at you. (laughs) Wearing two types of thread in your clothes. You're nothing but a cafeteria Christian, a hypocrite. Blah, 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 wah, wah. It's like Charlie Brown's parents, right? So then you're in this proverbial conundrum, literally, from Proverbs. Should I answer the fool according to his folly, or should I not answer the fool according to his folly? See Proverbs 26 as a reference. So those laws... I. Those laws in the Holiness Code, they were for the benefit of God's people. I want you to see that. Deuteronomy 22, verse 11, where it will be, I think, Wednesday night. Moses says this, You shall not wear a material of wool and linen combined together. Why not? Two reasons. Number one, the first one is to separate the common Israelite from the high priest, who himself was to be holy, set apart for God. The high priest wore an ephod made of both linen and thread. And he was to be separate from the common Israelite. Number two, it was to remind all the Israelites to be separate from, to not intermingle with the pagan nations that surrounded them, that they might constantly be reminded to be holy. Do not intermingle with the nations around you. Here's a reminder every day. Do not intermingle these threads. It's sort of an odd way to say it, but this holiness code, these laws that God gave to Israel were a manifestation of God's reminding grace toward Israel. And what do we have, the new covenant people of God that we are, wearing our different kinds of threads together? What do we have? We have water baptism, signifying visually for us that we have died to ourselves, we've gone down into the water, and we have been raised to newness of life in Christ. Just water. And of course we have the supper. We have food and drink regularly together. We will do it again today. That we might remind each other that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, gave His body and shed His blood that we might be redeemed from sin and hopeful of life eternal in His name. It's water. It's food. It's drink. It's God in His mercy giving us these simple illustrations to remind us that we are His people. May God open our eyes to see His illustrations all around us. 
one quick final high-level comment. I just ask you, how practical is our Lord's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount? Some of you are in worry right now. This morning. I want you to know as we begin to look at this inspired teaching from our King, you don't have to stay there. Right here this morning, you can be free from worry. Brothers and sisters, we who have believed need never to worry again about anything. Matthew 6, beginning in verse 25. Again, we must begin, as we consider the details, we must begin with the therefore. We should always be asking ourselves, what's the therefore, therefore? As I've already said, Jesus has already talked to us about the fact that God our Father already knows what we need before we ask Him. And He is in fact our Father and we are His children, which more than implies His great love for us. And that earthly treasures will never satisfy, they will never last. Therefore, child of God, speaking to all of you here who have believed. Therefore, given all of this, what could you possibly have to worry about? Let's just start there. Therefore, child of God, purchased by the precious blood of the Son of God, do not worry. This is a command, by the way. We'll come back to this at the end. Now, I want to tackle this text this morning because I want to look at the arguments and the reasons that Jesus provides. So, let's begin now with the argument from the greater to the lesser. That's where we're going to start, okay? So, hang with me here. Verse 25, Jesus says, Is not life, the greater, more than food, the lesser? Answer? Yes. Put it another way. Christian, do you mean to say that you have trusted your eternal soul to Jesus Christ? But you can't trust him with the nourishment of your body? Look again at verse 25. Is not your body the greater? More than clothing, the lesser. Answer? Yes. Put it another way. Do you mean to say that God has given you a gloriously designed body? But you can't trust him to keep it warm? You can't trust him to make the most basic provisions for you? This is like the uncle, right? Who on Christmas, he shows up and he provides this $50 remote control car to his nephew but won't spend three bucks on the batteries to make it go. I mean, this is a bad uncle. He provides the greater thing, the expensive remote control car, but neglects the lesser thing. The batteries. Our God is not like this. And many of you know what is perhaps the greatest type of this argument in the Bible. No, I know some of you out there are thinking this. From the greater to the lesser. Listen, the Apostle Paul writes this in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He, God, who did not spare his own son, the greater, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also, with him, freely give us all things. 
It's the greatest argument of any such kind in the universe. Paul got it. He's doubling down on this glorious teaching from the Sermon on the Mount. Brothers and sisters, this line of argumentation from the greater to the lesser is designed to crush your worries about your day-to-day needs. Jesus died for you, but He's going to let you starve to death? Freeze to death? I'm not saying there's not suffering. I'm not saying there's not persecution. That's not what I'm saying. And by the way, Jesus is not saying that either. Go back to chapter 5, verses 11 and 12 if you want to see that. But what Jesus does say is this. Luke 21. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, other relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all people because of my name. And yet, not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Jesus says to you today, he says to us today, what are you worried about? I have you. I will see you through. And if they kill you, then I'll just bring you to where I am. Do you trust me? Let's move to the next argument. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater now. The lesser to the greater. Look at verse 26. Are the birds, the lesser... More important than you, the greater. Answer, no. Do you, Christian, mean to say that God is the kind of God who cares deeply about the birds, such that not one of them falls to the ground without Him knowing, Matthew 10, 29, but He doesn't really care about you, His child, by faith, made in His image? Look at verses 28 to 30. Are the lilies of the field, the lesser, more important than you, the greater? Answer, no. Put another way. Do you, Christian, mean to say that God is the kind of God who spends His creative energy providing coverings, beautiful, lavish coverings for the flowers that last a few weeks, but He doesn't really care about how you will be covered? Look at verse 28 again more closely. Do you see in your text how it says, consider the lilies of the field, or some translations say, notice the lilies of the field? That word consider or notice, it means to think, really think, to examine thoroughly. It has the same root as the verb meaning to learn. Jesus wants you, Christian, to really think, to learn, to meditate on the flowers all around you. Here, let's try it together this morning. Have you ever thought about this fact? Most flowers in the world are germinated. They grow, they blossom, they die, and no one except for God himself, even sees them. And yet, the God of the universe cares for them in such a way, he clothes them in such a way, that surpasses even the royal garments of the great King Solomon. Have you ever thought about that? You should think about that. And then ask yourself, Shall he not also provide clothing for me? Christian, purchased by the blood of his son, 
Do you believe that he has provided the perfect righteousness of Christ for your spiritual covering, but then he'll leave you physically naked? Do you hear how ridiculous that sounds? Sometimes you just need to hear how ridiculous it sounds. One more point from this argumentation. Do you see here how Jesus is affirming the dignity of humanity? Do you see that? We're not plants, FYI. And we're not animals. We are God's special creation, made in His image and likeness. His breath is in us. Friends, the biblical worldview is the worldview that maximizes the dignity of humankind. I mean, let's think together. Does the idea that you and I are mere bags of fizzing fizzing chemicals with no overarching purpose to our lives breed in you a sense of, can't wait to get out of bed today and take what's coming at me? No, it doesn't. Is it any wonder that we, as we foist this godless, evolutionary worldview on children in godless schools that they end up completely hopeless all around us? Look at what Jesus, our Creator, does. He sets humans apart from the rest of His creation. Friends, this is glorious good news that might set a hopeless co-worker on the path to salvation. Or one of your unbelieving friends at your school, you might say to him, you might say to her in a time of struggle, you have dignity, you have value, you are made in the image and likeness of your Creator. And this Creator God has come to rescue you in the person of Jesus Christ, His Son. Maybe you need to say that to somebody this week. Fizzing bags of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen don't need to be rescued. They have no hope. But Jesus the Lord gives both. He gives dignity and He gives hope. Look at verse 27. There's another argument that Jesus provides in the form of a rhetorical question. Jesus asks, What has worrying ever got anyone? What has worry gotten you, friend? Even an additional hour of your life? If worry is of no value to you, such that it can't even add an hour to your life, then be done with it already. More than that, listen, if we're honest, not only is worry of no redeeming value, but it is actually of negative value, isn't it? Here's a couple questions for you to think about. Did you know that anxiety can actually shrink your brain? Did you know that anxiety can negatively impact your immune system, making you more susceptible to common illnesses? Did you know that anxiety can breed digestive disorders like ulcers in your stomach? Not only does worry not add an hour to your life, but in fact it may shorten it. At the very least, it will lessen your vitality. And it will lessen your effectiveness for the kingdom. I mean, I'm just reasoning with you like Jesus did. That's all. Just asking you questions. And you know what the answers are. So Jesus says, verse 25, verse 31, Do not worry. Christian, do not worry. And why? Verse 32, For the Gentiles seek after all these things. Now, In the context of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is speaking to a Jewish crowd. He's speaking to Jewish people. He's speaking to God's old covenant people. So the term Gentiles in direct context of Matthew chapter 6 refers to those who are not God's people. They are on the outside. 
of the covenant. Remember, in the Jewish mind, the world was divided up into Jews on the inside and Gentiles on the outside. Now, under the new covenant, who's inside and who's outside? We. We. Christians, bought by the shed blood of Jesus himself, the Bible says that we, Jew or Gentile, are on the inside. And the unbelievers, Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter, are outside. What's the point? The point is this. Jesus' exhortation is to us to, yes, be holy. Chapter 5, verse 48. What does that mean for us here in Matthew 6? Here's what it means. Christian, you on the inside, don't be like them. Who? The ones who are always chasing after food and drink and clothes. Also known as treasures on earth that get stolen and eaten by moths and rust. Christian, don't be like them. Fixed on, focused on, and worried about stuff that will not last. Just watch the commercials sometime. I know you usually go, you know, the refrigerator during commercials. But, yeah, I mean, as a good discipline, Christian, just watch the commercials. What do you see? Food and drink and clothing. And what do they want? They want you. Do you see this consistency that Jesus continues to weave through this sermon? Christian, disciples of Jesus, be perfect, be holy, be set apart, be peculiar, be strangers and aliens in this godless culture, and trust your Heavenly Father to provide for you exactly what you need. Again, do you trust Him? All right, we shouldn't worry. Jesus, got it. What shall we do? Look with me at verse 33. What shall we do? We should seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And we're going to linger here for a bit. First, we've already seen this in the Lord's Prayer, haven't we? Go back up. Matthew chapter 6, right? Verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Does it become before or after our petitions for God's glory to be manifest, God's kingdom to come, and God's will to be done? It comes after. Only after we have petitioned for the things of God, only after we have fixed our eyes on God and on His kingdom and on His will, then and only then do we make our petitions known to Him. I mean, when you pray, do you, how do you pray? Hey, God, good morning, I need this today, I need that today, I need these things today, thanks in advance, amen? Like God is some kind of divine ATM and He's waiting around all night for us to wake up so He can just wait on us hand and foot? Here's another thing about seek first. The Greek word for seek there in that verse, in verse 33, is a very strong word. 
So here, let me give you an idea of what that word seek means in verse 33. So you all know there's a story in Luke chapter 2 about how when Jesus was 12 years old, his parents accidentally left him in Jerusalem after the Passover feast. So as you likely know, they returned to Jerusalem after a couple of days and they searched for him, their son, Jesus. And they finally find him in the temple complex and they're just, he's discussing theology with the Jewish religious Leaders, in Luke chapter 2, verse 48, Jesus' mother Mary says to him, quote, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Some translations say, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. You think? I mean, have you ever lost your toddler? Like at Kennywood? Even for a second? You turn around and your kid's not there? Can you feel that anxiety welling up inside you even? I can. Been there. Done that. That feeling of, I must do everything I can, everything in my power to seek and find my child. That sense of urgency, friends. That's how we should be seeking after God's kingdom, after God's righteousness. That's what the word means. It's the same word. By the way, I didn't mention this a few minutes ago, but in verse 32, where it says that the Gentiles seek after all these things, that's the same root. What's the point? The point is that we should be seeking after God's kingdom, after God's righteousness, at least as urgently as we see the pagans all around us seeking after their food, after their drink, after their clothes. Christians, let us outpace our pagan neighbors to the feast of righteousness. Here's another thing I want you to see about seek first, verse 33. And this is related to last week's sermon. This is another call to all of you, to me, to get rid of our distractions. You remember the story of Mary and Martha from Luke chapter 10. Jesus shows up at Martha's house and Martha, being the good hostess, she greets him at the door, probably gives him a hug. Right, Tara? Right? When Jesus begins to teach, Mary sits down and listens. But Martha, Luke says, quote, was distracted with much serving. And she complains to Jesus that she's not getting any help from her sister, Mary. Well, Jesus answers Martha and says this. Please listen, quote, Martha, Martha, you are worried. Same word as in Matthew 6. You are worried and distracted by many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, and this will not be taken away from her. What did Mary choose? She chose to remove all of her household cares and worries and to focus on Jesus as he taught. Now, this is not a call to all the sisters out there to leave your houses in utter disarray. But there is a time to put those things down and to seek first Jesus' kingdom. And Jesus' righteousness. A spotless house, even with guests on the way, is not more important than being a disciple of Jesus Christ. People can get their own bottles of water from the fridge. And husbands, we can do the dishes and run the vacuum when our wives are at Bible study. Look at verse 33 one more time. Here's one more thing I want you to see. I want you to see from verse 33 that righteousness is the true currency 
of Jesus' kingdom. Righteousness is the true currency of Jesus' kingdom. Have you ever been to a different country and you need to exchange your money, you know, dollars for euros or whatever, because your dollars are no good in Germany? Well, I want you to know that your dollars, whether you have them or you are merely lusting after them, they're not the currency of the kingdom. Righteousness is. Have you ever wondered, listen, how, this is, I was thinking about this this week, obviously. Have you ever wondered why different people get different amounts of money in the parable of the talents? Matthew 25. I mean, there's a lot to learn from that particular parable. But one of the things you might learn from that parable is that it's not the amount of money you have that warrants a well-done, good and faithful servant from the Master. And the truth is that some people in this life are just wired to have or, or even earn more money than other people. That's a fact. I want you to know that more than money... We should be pursuing righteousness. Last week I said it's not clear that we've seen the limits of the sinfulness of man in light of where technology is going. Well, it might also be true that aside from Jesus himself, we have yet to see the limits of what a man or a woman sold out completely for the kingdom of Jesus Christ looks like. That's your goal. That's your challenge. And I'm not saying anything different from the Apostle Paul. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Paul says, run the race of righteousness to win. And by the way, lest you think I have obtained it, I have not. I'm preaching to myself this morning. Here's an example from the scriptures you might consider as we think about this idea, about the true currency of the kingdom. Look over the requirements for the elders in a local church body. 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1. There are a bunch of requirements there for sure. Wealth is not one of them. Because that's not our currency here. Some of us have been in churches where board members are chosen based on wealth or on their popularity in the community. And I want you to know that's a disgrace. That's an affront to Christ. At one point in his ministry, the Lord Jesus himself said he had no place to lay his head. When you need help, when you're in crisis, when your marriage is on the rocks, where do you go? Do you go to the rich people? For what? A good divorce attorney? Is that where you go? No, you go to the wise person. You go to the righteous person. If you're wise yourself. Righteousness is the currency here in the church and in the kingdom of God. And what about the times when you need money? Let's get real practical. What about the times when you need money? When the bills outweigh your bank account? Should you go to God and ask for wisdom and guidance and help? Yes, of course you should. Why? Because He owns it all. Did you hear Psalm 50 before the sermon? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God will provide. He will provide through the church or through your family or through your friends. He maybe even miraculously will provide for you. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And then what? What's it say? Look at it. Verse 33. All these things will be added to you. Do you realize what an incredible promise that is? He knows what you need even before you ask Him for it. 
All right. In light of all of this, this argumentation and exhortation, how should we respond? So a few points for our response. Okay? Again, let's be practical. We saw in the last sermon, from this Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus is telling us not to trust in our money. Don't trust in our treasures on this earth. We should trust in God. This morning in our text, we see that if we find ourselves in need of money or in need of treasures here on earth, we should not worry, but again, we should trust in God. So our first response to teaching like this should always, and in every circumstance, be Christian. Trust God. This is the narrow way of discipleship in the way of Jesus. And it has a ditch on both sides you can fall into. And it seems elementary, right? I mean, okay, here's the headline in the local paper tomorrow morning. Quote, preacher exhorts congregation to believe God. Right? This is, this is not news. But if you search your heart, you know that at the root of all your sin is what? Unbelief. Same with me. So let's encourage one another today, as long as it is today, to believe God, to take Him at His word. We should also remember that our discipleship is behind Jesus. We can make two mistakes here. One, we can stray from the path. You know, one day you're walking along, living your life, and you look up and, oop, Jesus isn't walking in front of you anymore. And you say something like, wow, I need to find Jesus. Guess what? Jesus isn't the one who's lost. This is where some of you are today. You're not following Jesus. You're going your own way with as much as love as I can muster. Get back on the path before you're lost for good. But there's another mistake to be made here. And this is why I emphasize the word behind. Our discipleship is behind Jesus. Have you ever read in the Gospel accounts Jesus commanding anyone to come, friend, walk in front of me? Does he say that? No. Jesus says, come, friend, follow me. And this is so wise. Because as it turns out, he not only knows where he's going, but he knows where you're going too. And I'll tell you this. There are many paths that we are called to walk that if we would have known that was our path, we would have never taken the first step. You older saints, you know what I'm talking about. This is what the Bible means when it says that we are to walk by faith, not by sight. When we're really living into that verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we can't walk by sight. Why? Because we are walking so closely to the Lord Jesus Christ that all we can see in front of, him, in front of us is His tunic. We're so spiritual sometimes. We're more spiritual than Jesus. You know, we say things like, come on, Jesus, not that way, this way. It's craziness. Look at verse 34. Let's talk about discipleship. Jesus says, therefore, therefore, because all these things are going to be added to you. That's the promise in verse 33. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now you might think that Jesus provides these couple of sentences as a kind of tack on at the end. They're not. Tell me, what are the two things that people worry about the most? What are the two things that you worry about the most? Money and the future. We had this little interaction. I'll just peek into our house, right? 
And Leah knows that I was going to talk about this. So very briefly, we were having this conversation about, you know, she's at university and she's studying forensics. And we were talking about career and motherhood. Right? And, 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 I, and I love that she's wrestling with these things. Career and motherhood. So we're talking about motherhood, and she says, well, then why am I even at the university if all I'm going to do is be a mom? And I'm like, whoa, what's your language, girl? Right? Motherhood is not all you're going to do. It should not be trivialized in that way. That's number one. Number two, because then the conversation turns to, and why are we spending all this money, and what if I just graduate, and, and I get married, and I become a mom, and I... Money and future. That's what we're talking about, right? Right there. Happening in our house. This week. Answer. Are you supposed to be at university today, studying forensics today? Do we, by prayer and supplication before God, we believe that's what you're supposed to be doing today? Answer, yes, then do that. Be Christian, do it. And leave the money and the future to God. He will work it out. Stay on the path, brothers and sisters, behind your Lord and King. Follow Him today. Sufficient for today is its own trouble. Here's another narrow way consideration, you know, between these ditches that we're talking about. Is Jesus telling us in this text not to save for the future? Very practical question. Because if that's what he is saying, then a lot of us need to go rethink what we're doing. Some people through the centuries have taken these verses to mean that. Answer, no. This is not what Jesus is saying. But again, we have to think because there's a narrow way. The first ditch, which we saw last time, is that you plan and you save and you invest and then you trust in those things rather than trusting in God. That's the ditch on the right. The ditch on the other side of the narrow path is this. You're not prudent, but you're foolish. And you can be foolish in a couple of different ways. Maybe you're foolish because you're not frugal, but instead you choose to store up treasures for yourself here on earth. And then you worry because you're literally broke, or worse. And I want you to know there's no guarantee of grace for those that are foolish and wasteful and extravagant. For those who foolishly store up for themselves treasures here on earth in opposition to the commands of Jesus. In most cases, I would say that if you in fact are a foolish believer, then there's discipline coming. Or maybe you're foolish because you don't do the necessary work. And you say stupid things like, the, like in Proverbs while you're dozing off into a nap. Like, oh, no need to work. God's just going to provide. No sanctified saint ever talked like that. Look at 2 Thessalonians 3.10 if you need a reference. Friends, even the birds gather straw to build their nests. Even the squirrels spend the autumn gathering the nuts in their cheeks, right? This is like one of my favorite things to watch, right? Even the farmers need to plow the ground and plant seed. So we should be prudent and frugal. We should plan for the future as the Lord provides the means today to do so. But trusting God as the ultimate provider for our daily needs every day as they come. I mean, isn't it reasonable to think that God's provision 10 years from now may be a result of your prudence and frugality today? With what He provided for you today? How else should we respond? Here we go. Here's another one, right? We should read and study and know and meditate on our Bibles. Here we are again. 
like a broken record, these preachers you have here at Abiding Grace Church, exhorting you to read your Bible. But we preachers want you to see how God has worked out all His purposes in the lives of His people. Are you God's people? If so, then I assure you on the authority of the Word of God Himself that He will work out His purposes for your life, whether it's long or short. It doesn't matter. And you should be convinced that your God, your Heavenly Father, will never give you more than you can bear. 1 Corinthians 10.31 These are His promises. You are anxious. You are worried. You are in fear. You are in unbelief because either one, you don't know God's promises to you. There's no excuse for that. Or two, you do know God's promises and you simply don't believe them. It's not enough if God's promises are only in your mind. We must start there. You can't believe a promise you don't know. But if you look later today at Romans 10, verses 8 through 10, it's with the heart that one believes. If you're in worry, you have to get some heart work done. And where does that happen, brothers and sisters? It doesn't happen on the street corners. It happens in your prayer closet. Bless you. That's where the heart work gets done. That's where the real work Gets done, and it gets these great and precious promises of God from your mind into your heart. Theologians, theologians always say that the greatest distance in the spiritual life is the 18 inches between your head and your heart. And so many Christians are not about this work. And that's why you worry. And that's why you're anxious, and that's why you're afraid. And I have been there. That's why we are in unbelief. Look again in verse 30 as we wrap up here. I want you to see that Jesus calls his hearers a name. That phrase in verse 30, But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? That, that phrase, you of little faith, it's all one word in the Greek language. It's a term. It's a descriptive term. It means little faiths. And it's not complimentary. Remember, Jesus is speaking to God's people. And yet he calls them little faiths. I have to ask you, brother, sister, please, have you believed on Jesus Christ, but you still don't believe him? When he says, friend, I have saved you. Do you respond, yes. And then when he says, and now friend, I'll provide for your every need. You're like, uh, not, not, not so sure about that one, Lord. When we worry, this is exactly what we're saying. And Jesus says, come now, little faith person. Let us reason together. I have cared for your soul. Shall I not also care for everything else? This was a lot longer than I was anticipating, Pastor Mike. So I'm not going to send you to Philippians 4. But we did read it before the sermon. And I want you to see there that Paul picks up this same theme. Do not be anxious. And he uses words like reasonableness. And he uses the word think on these things. Whatever is true whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure. The birds of the air, the lilies of the field. All right, let me finish up. There's no way around it, brothers and sisters. Worry is a sin. 
My dad told me that when I was a teenager. You don't even remember. Oh, you remember. Oh, there you go. God bless it. And I would say neither one of us was even a Christian at the time. But I remember it. Somehow in my teenage mind, those neurons, they stuck together and I can see it. Jesus gives a command. Do not worry. When we worry, it is a violation of the command of the king. It's a very simple deduction I'm providing for you. I have no interest in petting any one of you, even me, in our sin. You violate a command, you're in sin. And if you're in sin, if you're in worry, if you're in anxiety, if you're in fear, if you're in unbelief, the first thing you need to do is you need to repent. Today. And do the work. You must fight. A wise man once preached this, quote, Faith is refusing to be burdened because we have cast our burden on the Lord. We must pray, we must fight, we must think. We must put to death the flesh that sinfully wants to hold that burden. Paul says, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. Let's think his thoughts. The burden of Jesus, our Lord, is light. Let us take his burden and give him the burdens that drive us to worry and weigh us down. May God give us all the strength we need to win this battle. Let's pray.